So welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. We have some great guests today. We have Andrea Grover, who's the executive director of Guild Hall. And she's going to talk to us about what's going on there and her road to Guild Hall, which is paved with picture shows and other cool stuff. And also her husband, Carlos Lama, who is, I love this, a native Texan with Peruvian roots. Yes. And a very well-known DJ. He was instrumental in the move with Inner Sleeve Records and Amagansett, but I mean, so much more. They're East End residents, and it's going to be like really fun to talk to them. But first, Alec, how was your week? Anything interesting going on with you? I, I, I will say this time of year is, has been uh, really a spectacular and transformative. Fall has always been, for me, a great time out on the East End. The, uh, the ions of the, of the uh, atmosphere seem to change. Days get a little shorter. You get that little kind of crispiness in the air. You start to see, uh, at least I do, you know, nature not so much shutting down, but transforming for its hibernation. And it all uh, kind of serves it for me to just appreciate the warmth while it's here. That's beautiful. Anyway, you know, we might as well just bring on our guests. So <laughs> welcome, Carlos, Andrea. It's great to have you on. <laughs> so let's talk about your your road. Well, t- talk about when you met, because uh, I assume you met in Texas, since you're both we from met there. In Texas. I'm from Texas. Uh, pretty much born and raised, but what uh, part? Uh, Houston and thereabouts. My mother's from a small town north of Houston, which is very redneck, as Andrew can attest. We did a we did a drive by once after. Uh, we were together for a while, and uh, she was kind of slack-jawed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm half East Texas redneck and half Peruvian bourgeois, as I like to say. Uh, and um, but raised in Texas, and we met. She was running a place called the Aurora Picture Show, which was a uh, a cinema housed in an old church that she bought. She could probably tell you much more about that. I won't steal that thunder from her. But actually, we met, to be honest, in a kickboxing gym um, where I watched her do Muay Thai kickboxing and beat the hell out of many women and, and, men. and men. 
which is, by the way, going back to Texas, you know, uh, yeah. my first time I was down in Houston, I actually went and saw a football game in the Astrodome back in the day. Yes. I, the guy that took me said, and I know I, 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 at the risk of being canceled, uh, that the definition of a queer in Texas is somebody that likes women more than football. Wow. Well, that's so funny because I did play football uh, growing up, up until, um, up until my freshman year of high school, but then I discovered uh drugs sex and rock and roll <laughs> amen brother yeah yeah <laughs> anyway so you met you met watching andrea basically kick the crap out of a bunch of women and men yeah. and and then how did i mean you guys have been together a while like what was the what was the spark um well it was the matchmaker the woman who was teaching the class she said hey you know you two need to get together without telling us and she handed me a flyer one day for the theater and a light bulb went off and you can take it over from there if you want. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, so we were in this kickboxing gym. It was called Torres, Torres Aponte Self-Defense Academy. And it was a metal building with no air conditioning in Texas where the summers get you know well into the... So I was working through some issues and Carlos came to the gym almost every time I was there. And he was with this young kid, like a 12 year old kid, 11 year old kid. And I, and he uses a wheelchair and he at the time used to wear sleeveless t-shirts. We call them wife beaters where I'm from. <laughs> I don't call them that. And uh, baggy jeans had you know, tattoos and piercings and he always had his head shaved because he was very hot. And I, and the kid was this blonde haired little kid. And I was like, there's no relationship between these two. And I fabricated a whole story that he was in some big brothers program and he was doing his penance by driving this kickboxing gym. But lo and behold, the owner's wife saw us making eyes at each other for three months. Something like that. And yes. she finally took one of my flyers and handed it to him. And he thought, oh, She's not a secretary at Enron. She's actually, <laughs> and, and I'm still thinking he's a gang member. And, uh, and so he asked me out, but I wanted to do research before I went out with him. So I went to a hairdresser, Trish Herrera, who was in a famous Texas punk band called the My Dolls. They were in the movie Paris, Texas. Anyway, I asked Trish about Carlos and she basically was like, beware, just watch out for that one. He's a player. And so I said, great, just my type. <laughs> and we went out on a date. We went to Latina Cafe. Yeah, we went to Cuban Cafe. They oversalted the food and I was really, really snappy to the waiter in Spanish because I, I was, was trying like, to show off. Right. <laughs> that's very that's very Peruvian of you. Yeah. So and 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 you were running a cinematic program? Yeah. So I moved, I studied art went to college for art, graduate school for art, applied for an, a residency program in Houston called the CORE program. That's part of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. And they give you a big, huge studio space attached to the museum for two years and a monthly stipend to live on. So I was in Chicago at the time, put everything I owned in a van, drove down to Texas, thought, where the hell am I? The only thing I knew about Houston was the Astrodome and AstroTurf. And um, I fell in love with it because it was the most lawless, free-spirited, welcoming place I'd ever been. Every artist that I met was opening a gallery or a cafe in their living room because there's no zoning laws in Houston. So you can literally open a tarot shop 
in your front window, or you can open a barber shop, whatever it is. In fact, one of our neighbors had a barber shop in their front window. So all of these artists were buying houses for, you know, 29, 39, $49,000 and making it a live workspace. And so after I finished the core program as a resident, I did the same thing. I bought an old church building that was built in 1924 and um, converted it into a cinema. And I lived behind the screen. Enter Carlos Lama. He soon <laughs> lived behind the screen too. Two and, years later. And our two children. <laughs> one child lives behind the screen. And then three and a half years later, another child lives behind the screen. So right. Awesome. The, my, one of my favorite movies of all time is, is the old Buster Keaton movie, Sherlock Jr. It, it's really the first movie, you know, he made it in 1924-25, where he, he plays a projectionist, which at that time was kind of a, a new job who, to solve his, his personal problems in his own life, jumps onto the screen. And, you know, Woody Allen used that uh, liberally in their Purple Rose of Cairo. Right. But, uh, I've always wanted to live in the screen, so I love the idea that you guys were living behind the screen. That's brilliant. We did, yeah. literally. No, but the, the church was a magical place because it really, it still looked like a church. She had kept the pews, kept the building intact, so much wood. And we just had, you know, a big screen and a sound system when we showed really weird movies about every two weeks. And like Andrea would say, it was uh, it was like having a year round film festival. We had we had a we called the congregation because the people who came and supported and it was a nonprofit. And still, still, still around. Is. So it was founded in 1998 in the old church building. And then I ran it for 10 years from the founding until 2008 pass the baton to the very capable um, hands. And it's now a nom kind of a nomadic. They have a, they do have a screening space, but they still do programming all around the city of Houston. It is the Aurora Picture Show? Yeah, the Aurora Picture Show. And it's a, uh, it's a nonprofit that celebrates moving image art that falls outside of the boundaries of the abnormal kind of narrative film and, and popular. And, and then, you know, how did you make the transition to the East End? I was just going to say the same thing. Oh, yeah. well, I skipped a big chunk. I just well, started with him. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. We can jump but, around. Um, so that we met when I was 29. 30. Okay. No, I was raised in Freeport on Long Island in Nassau County. My dad was in the boat business, a uh, big family. Everybody went into the boat business with him. And I mean, we all worked in the boat business. And then my mom was an artist, sculptor, and a painter. And so I eventually went to art school and moved to Syracuse, New York, for undergraduate, and then to Chicago for graduate school at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And then from there, I went down to Texas for the core program, ended up founding Aurora Picture Show, staying for 10, 15 years, a long time. Then we went to Carnegie Mellon. I got a fellowship through the Warhol Foundation to study artists who work in technology and engineering. I'm just curious. So while you're doing that, what was, with Carlos, what were you doing? Because you, now you have two kids, right? You had Gigi and, and Lola already? So when we were in Houston, I was working at the Contemporary Arts Museum Houston uh, as an arts educator. And uh, I ran a really successful teen program for the last two years called the Teen Arts Council, um, modeled on one from Walker Arts Center. And in fact, Guild Hall now has a Teen Arts Council as well, very similar. But I was always helping, you know, technically my background is in audio engineering, that's what I went to school for. 
but I've always been very adept at computers and anything technology oriented. So I was doing all of that for, uh, you know, during the screenings, I was getting paid with love, not money. <laughs> That's what art is about. Money comes and goes. I mean, love yeah. is what matters, right? Exactly. We were definitely both ready for a change uh, after being in Houston. <clears throat> I had lived in Houston for 25 years and I had moved to New York for two years and then for Chicago for a year. And it's funny because we, Andrea and I, we missed each other by just a few months. I moved to New York when she moved to Chicago. I moved to Chicago when she, she moved to Houston. I moved to Houston. And as I joke, I had to move back to Houston to meet a nice girl from Long Island. Which is <laughs> You know, I just have to say it's it's very funny because actually Eric and I have a very similar, my husband and I have a very similar timeline where I wish I could see little dots on a map, like, because we missed each other so many times. It's like the opening of When Harry Met Sally. We never met. You know, they have those little snippets. Yeah, we and, never and, met. And Harry Met Sally actually, uh, I think, was partially uh, inspired by a French film uh, called uh, And Now My Love uh, that was from the late 70s in which it was a love story in which the, the two characters didn't meet to the last scene, but you saw how their lives intertwine almost like a double helix, and they end up kind of on an airplane at the very end, and you know within two seconds they're going to spend the rest of their life together. It's a beautiful movie. Oh, I want to see a lot that. of movies. Well, yeah, I, I got too much information in my head. <laughs> I, I, I love movies. I love movies. That's Basically, so we were ready to go, and... Uh, when we got to, well, we stayed for about six weeks with Andrea's parents in Freeport, which was fine for me, but she glazed over after about three days. <laughs> and it was catatonic. And we looked for a house out here because she had gotten a job at the Parish Art Museum as a curator, but uh, that wouldn't start until the next year. And we had, uh, so we knew we were going to go to Pittsburgh for a few years so she would finish her fellowship there. But, um, you know, I'm actually a stay-at-home husband now, mostly, uh, which I don't mind at all. And it's not without its challenges, of course, but... Um, well, let's but talk about that for a second. I get great satisfaction every day out of keeping a, a home. Yeah. Uh, it's not something that has traditionally or culturally been, you know, given to men, yeah. uh, which I think is, is erroneous, but that's another conversation. What What has been your challenges and what are your greatest joys of doing that? Um, I guess the biggest challenge is, I mean, my God, just the simplest of things, keeping the house tidy, <laughs> you know, doing all the things where, you know, you have your own, I have my own projects and things that I'd like to do, but then there are other things, you know, that take precedence, um, you know, just order, <laughs> yeah. groceries, just the basics, you know, that sort of thing. But the thing that I, what, what's most uh, enriching to me, though, is just getting to spend, you know, time with the kids when they, you know, I'm available when they need me. If they say, you know, I have to go do this or I need this or can you help me? It's basically yes. I don't have to say I can't right now. You know, I'll get back to you. But I know it sounds it sounds kind of just a, a bit boring, but that's it's honestly. I, just, it doesn't uh, sound at all boring. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> seriously. And I would actually say, and you know, without diving too deep into the philosophy of, of modern life and the vacuum of meaning, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we live in a time where we're all searching for meaning and we all feel so kind of on islands. 
And uh, I certainly uh, espouse that, that it's through connection and it's through family that we all find our greatest meaning. So to me, that's not boring at all. It actually is uh, quite enlightened. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. That sounds like a good place to take a little break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. Here on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online at WLIW.org slash radio. We'll be right back. I'm Meg Noonan inviting you to join me on 88.3 WLIW-FM for Freeform Radio at its new time every Sunday night from 9 to 11. You'll hear a lively mix of rock in all its glorious subgenres, plus a heavy dose of soul, R&B, and more. So tune into Freeform Radio, where variety reigns supreme, Sundays at 9 p.m. on 88.3 WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. The following is a public service announcement from 88.3 WLIW-FM. Founded in 1987, The Retreat is a nonprofit licensed domestic violence agency. It provides a number of services to help break the cycle of family violence. The Retreat offers a secure residence on the east end of Long Island and works with local, state, and national agencies to provide a safe haven, food, clothing, and support. More information at theretreatinc.org or 631-329-4398. We're back Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And this is Alex Sokolow. And we're talking with Andrea Grover of Guildhall and her husband, Carlos Lama, famed DJ and man about town. And uh, we've been talking about home life. Part of that is getting around. And Carlos, I, I know you guys just did a beautiful, beautiful layout uh, in, in Hamptons, Cottages and Gardens, a photo of the two of you in a hammock. I'm getting a little choked up because it was so beautiful. And your wheelchair, if people don't know you are in a wheelchair, is really prominently displayed and uh, a beautiful quote from Andrea about uh, your throne. You know, how whenever she sees you come in on your throne, she thinks that's my man. Sorry, mm-hmm. did get emotional. Can't help it. Can Aww. Can you talk? How How did you How did you end up in a wheelchair? I uh, <clears throat> I broke my back in a car accident when I was 23 years old, traveling across the country um, in North Carolina. And my girlfriend at the time was driving. I was sleeping in the back. We decided to drive. All through the night probably was not a good idea, uh, considering uh, a gust of wind kind of pushed her over into the shoulder and flipped, and I was thrown out of the car, and I broke my back, my neck in several places, but I had a spinal cord injury about mid-chest level, so I was in the hospital for, in rehab for about three months, um, and, you know, at first they were saying, you'll never walk again. And uh, then I started getting some movement and um, just started rehabbing myself uh, once I got out. And, you know, I had to adjust to 
a whole new different life. I think, um, well, two things that came out of it, well, several things, but two things that were immediate is when I was in the hospital there, I had 10 friends at my bedside within two days from- They had traveled from all over. Right, from both in, you know, edges of the continent. And although I never considered that, you know, never took my friends for granted, uh, I really appreciated them for who they were and they essentially became my family. And they were just as instrumental in, in you know, me. Your recovery, yeah. My recovery, adjusting. But I was, you know, I was determined to do everything that I could, regardless of what had happened. But you should tell them why they specifically became your family. Well, I lost my own parents at a really young age, relatively young age. My my father and mother died when I two years apart when I was 19 and 21. They both died of cancer, strangely enough, two totally different, unrelated types of cancer. But they were remarkably young. My dad was 42 and my mom was 41. So it was, I had a really, a lot of things happened within a short five-year period. My parents died. And I had a son that was, you know, with a woman that I was not, we weren't a couple. And then I broke my back two months later. So it was, it was very intense. A lot of growing up really, really quick. And, and I mean, there, there's so much there um, in, a, in a period of your life. Yeah. You know, where, where I think uh, most people think, A, they're going to live forever. Yep. B, they're invincible. Yep. And C, uh, there's a lot of pride and ego uh, kind of flying around of, of all the things you're going to do and want to do, you're, you're confronted with, with kind of almost unheard of traumas. How, mm -hmm. like, what do you think it is about your, your disposition and, and or how did that change your disposition at such a young age? Out of, out of tragedy does come opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, and what were the opportunities that you were able to kind of gravitate towards? Well, I think it really emphasized, um, like you had said earlier, just uh, the importance of relationships and communication. And that was much more important than say, monetary gain uh, or you know anything like that. I really just wanted to live for the moment because I had seen in my own parents that it wasn't forever. And I guess I had realized in myself that I better get my together <laughs> and, uh, and do what I wanted to do. You know, the other thing is that sort of on a, metaphysical level, if you want to believe it, I was moving to New York to try and get a foothold in something, you know, wh whether it be music or acting, uh, which, you know, very interested in both. But uh, I had a son and I was really escaping my responsibilities. And by virtue of the fact that I did, you know, injure myself and had to move back to Texas, and it afforded me the opportunity to basically raise him and, and to be, you know, be his father, which I don't think that would have happened otherwise. And uh, he's 32 now, and we have an amazing... And his name room. is... His name is Adrian. <laughs> poke, 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 poke. And his mom's name is... Oh, God. His mother's name is also Andrea. I didn't pick it. <laughs> I only have children with women named Andrea, so... Okay. Andrea's, watch out. But yeah, no, he's, and, and, and I have a relationship with him that's just only getting better. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it amazing. really is wonderful. That's beautiful.
And I do want to add a quick disclaimer here. Andrea Grover is the executive director of Guildhall, and I do some freelance work for Guildhall. So just wanted to go on the record with that. Yeah, let's shift to Guildhall a little bit. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by Guildhall because it's it for me, it's an institution in, in on the East End. The programming, uh, the space itself, it doesn't happen by itself. And it does take a lot of, you know, a sweat equity to kind of... Uh, be such a magnet. How did you get involved with Guildhall? And really what, like from the inside looking out, how does Guildhall fit into people's lives on the East End, in your opinion? So I came to Guildhall in 2016. I was recruited to be the successor of Ruth Applehoff, who was at Guildhall for, I believe, 18 years prior to me and did a wonderful job. I was at the Parish Art Museum at the time, and I was the curator of special projects, doing a lot of programming that was designed for the new facility and the new vision for the institution. So a lot of outdoor, off-site, temporary projects for the Parish Roadshow, and then more kind of intervention-like artist projects in the building that played with the architecture or the galleries, and that was called Parish Platform. And I also ran the Pechacucha Nights, uh, started Pechacucha Night Hamptons, which was an incredible accelerated introduction to the community. And that's, it was sort of selfishly designed that way. So the parish, um, and I had been there for five and a half years, was recruited to go to Guildhall and kind of bring some of those ideas for expanding the role of a museum and a theater and an institution to Guildhall. So I joined in 2016. And boy, is Guildhall, you were so right, Alex, it's like a completely different um, animal. Uh, so Guildhall was founded almost 90 years ago now, and it was from the start a kind of arts town hall. So there was a, a single donor who donated the property in the building. Her name was Mary Woodhouse. And the first mission was to use arts and theater to create a finer type of citizenship. So in other words, the founder believed that exposure to the arts would make people better civic participants and more socially engaged and just worldly. So when we opened our doors in 38, it was during the height of the Great Depression, no staff, no operating, a minimal operating budget, no you know, long-term plans, because it was a moment not unlike now when there was a lot of uncertainty. So everything at Guildhall was by committee. There was like a committee for like crudite, you know? I want to be on that committee. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So it was the community ran Guildhall. And also there's never been an exclusivity in terms of what kind of art Guildhall shows. So it's the kindergartner to the Pulitzer Prize winner. And so to use Joseph Boy's edict, um, everyone is an artist. Guildhall really embraces that notion that the creativity is innately human. And so I do this little question, this little survey when I do local talks and I say, how many here, I'm gonna ask you guys, how many here um, have presented on stage or exhibited in the galleries of Guildhall? Yes, Yay. 100% of the room ladies. Okay. <laughs> I, I did. I actually, I, I, when I first moved back east uh, about five or six years ago with my then uh, writing uh, collaborator, we were trying to uh, put up a musical uh, that was a uh, kind of whimsical retelling of the Scopes Monkey trial told from the point of view of the monkey. And we did it at Guild Hall. And it was like it, it somehow it opened up to us just to have a reading. But then it became more than a reading. It became a bit of a production. Uh, it was actually... Um, 
We did it about a week after Trump had won the election. And it was the wrong time, the wrong moment. But, but I got to see the belly of Guildhall and just the, the giving and the amount of people that would show up to help you just try and express something it was incredible. And, yeah. and my, my association with Guildhall goes way, 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 way back. Well, I was in two productions there. I was in 12 Angry Jurors, mm. and I was also Trinculo in uh, The Tempest. But even more than that, which is just amazing to me, is that my husband, Eric, learned how to walk in the aisles there because both of his parents were part of the community theater. So when we go back toward the green room in Guildhall, it's like a, it's like a family album because we've got the, the old things that have Eric's mom and dad in the on the playbills and then you get to the back and you see the things that Tony Walton or Steve Hamilton have directed and then there's the big cripple of Inishman with a picture of my daughter Georgia holding an egg I mean it's like Guildhall is really my family coming well, home for me all right, so, all right and then we hijacked your story sorry about sorry, that sorry um, sorry when, we did that when so you're saying everybody has a chance to be on the stage yeah, no, and that's the difference. And I and I think you could take that measurement against any institution in the country and say, is that the case at Lincoln Center or is it the case at MoMA that you know your kindergartner can hang their work in the main galleries? It's not. And this is very unique to Guildhall. I don't think you'll find a place that will have an artist who's won international accolades and is in every museum collection that has work hanging with you know student art or with someone who's just maybe emerging in their career. So that is really interesting to me. And But I, I will say that we are celebrating our 90th anniversary in, nine, in uh, 2021, 1931 to 2021. And my assistant, Elise Trax, who is an art historian by training, her father was Butch Trax of the Allman Brothers. Um, we, we've been spending all this time in the quote unquote archives, which is basically a barn. <laughs> Um, and we've been going through these piles and we both stop and we like freeze when we find things that we have an incredible staff, but they haven't been around for 90 years. So there are things that we're even discovering that we can bring back to them. Um, for instance, Guildhall during the war had um, World which, War II. Which war? Which war? Uh, <laughs> World War II. In America, what, what war? <laughs> initiated something called the Winter War Program for soldiers that were stationed nearby. And it was an entertainment program. And among the people who performed was Ethel Barrymore. Um, among the contributors to the program was Mrs. John Bouvier, so Jackie's mom. Um, and then on top of that, we had four blood drives at Guildhall. And I brought this back and told Janine Diner, who's our deputy director, another incredible linchpin of the organization. And she said, oh yeah, Guildhall was also a polling place when I first came here. So the notion of it as a civic art space where there's this mingling of your responsibility to community with the appreciation of the arts, is, it's in our DNA. And there also, I have to talk about some of the staff that's been there for a long time. Josh Gladstone, who's our artistic director of the John Drew Theater, um, you know, he is an actor by training. Um, he is a Shakespearean and he himself understands the craft from, uh, you know, the audience to the stage to backstage. And then we have Christina Strasfield, who is our chief curator and museum director, who actually was at the Met in her early career and came out to Guildhall now 30 years ago. Um, and she really does know, you know, every artist who's kind of touched the institution. De Kooning was very involved in the early years of Guildhall or the middle years of Guildhall. 
and you mentioned like Giltala's family, Bridget, that's a direct quote I found from him in the archives. I said it first. No. Exactly. And then we have uh, a, a newish comer to the program, which is Anthony Madonna. He's our Patty Kenner Fellow in Arts Education. And he's kind of the, the connected tissue between the theater and the museum through the educational program that he's doing with the Teen Arts Council, which mm -hmm. Carlos helped you know, provide some of the framework for, for that establishing. These are teenagers who are paid members of the staff. Right. Well, that's what I wanted. I wanted to bring that up before we go to our next break, because Carlos, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation. As far as teens and arts in general, I went online just to look up teens and arts podcasts. And it was like the art of talking to your teenager or teaching teenagers the art of saving money. There's not a whole bunch, surprisingly, out there about teens and arts. And there really should be because like Mozart and, you know, other people were teenagers or younger. Mm -hmm. when they found their their calling so right. you know what what do you like what do you see as far because you have teenagers too as yep. far as arts and teenagers in the east end like what kind of soup is there cooking there i just want to say yeah, i call my husband the teen whisperer because we'll get a call from one of our daughters and they'll and i'll answer and they go yes yeah, dad there for you but he teenagers at at thanksgiving dinner parties whatever who are sullen they're at the edge of the table. They don't want to be with anyone. Within 30 minutes, they're like, oh, do you, do you ever listen to this kind of music? You know, they're just cozying up to him. He's exceptional with young people. I chalk it up to arrested development. <laughs> so it must be for me because I just relate my own experience as being a teenager and all of the things that I saw and was exposed to and that moved me when I was anywhere from, you know, 15 to 19. And I, I don't ever want to let go of that because that's, it's such a, it's such a lifelong imprinting that happens. And so the more you can expose someone to just what's the possibilities of what's out there and not just what's in front of you, but go beyond that. And so out here in the East End, there are, are many, many opportunities, but I think... Uh, but actually, we, Guildhall, just did a strategic plan, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the East End has a much higher than normal uh, unemployment rate among teenagers, and also high, higher than average um, drug and alcohol usage. So there, yes, it is a great place to grow up, but mm. there are some things that need to be addressed, like mental health as well, especially during this pandemic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to say, although it, there are many, many things, uh, opportunities, I think, for teenagers and students, they need a catalyst. They need someone to introduce them, whether that be a teacher that really cares for them or shows them something or... It doesn't have to be an art teacher. It can be any sort of teacher or, uh, you know, a relative, an uncle, a cousin. Sadly, if they don't have that opportunity or if they don't have that someone, it really is on them to find something that really does interest them. I mean, for me, I grew up in, a, I went to high school in my mother's hometown and I just, I knew there was a world out there waiting and I couldn't wait. And so, you know, my senior year, I said, I've had enough. I'm going to Houston. I'm living with my dad. And that just opened up a whole nother because that was a city and there was so much going on. So again, it is 
absolutely beautiful out here. And I think, you know, people who grow up here really do later in life appreciate it. But culturally, it, it you just need conduits for that, you know, uh, type well, it's, of... It's different if you're a teenager and you grow up out here. I mean, people, uh, you know, especially adults with, with finances, you know, dream of, of ending up in the Hamptons. But if you're born out here and you're a teenager and maybe you don't drive and you don't have someone to drive you somewhere and you're in Springs or, you know, Montauk or, or whatever, it's really hard to get around. There's not a lot of public transportation, all of that kind of stuff. So to have a, a cultural hub like, uh, like Guildhall and Southampton Arts Center, because I know you're great friends with Amy Crow and Andrea, and, and all of the other places to be able to have them offer those kind of cultural lifelines for teenagers is even more important, I think, than it is in, in a place like New York City, where there's a lot of things. Well, but, but I would also just add, and, and I think this is a theme that's really coming out in this conversation, which I love, you know, we, we're living in a time of a lot of paradox and, you know, we're so connected with all our devices, but really we're very isolated. And, uh, you know, the, the idea that Guildhall, as the example, is a public house, kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a hub where um, an energy can be created that hopefully will attract people and give people of any age, but especially teenagers when, when, you can get lost uh, and go down rabbit holes a little bit quicker, no matter where you, you are. Uh, I think it's never been more important. It, it, it's, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about the need for authenticity at this moment in time. Uh, I would say the need for connection is really coming across strongly in this conversation for me. And, and that feels kind of like what the, some of the programs are, because it's when you say the art of something, it, you know, it, it, you're actually talking about the art of, of, of being present and alive and and looking forward uh, in your life and not disappearing in, in the morass of, of social media. Yeah, well, that, might, that might be a good place for us to take our, our last break and come back and talk about how you guys have pivoted in this time of pandemic. So we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we're coming to you on WLIW-FM. Stick around. If history has told us anything, the election will be decided by just a few states. We'll look at what's happening on the ground in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and beyond. That's next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Sunday night at 11. Hi, this is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. What I can't understand, Mars, what are you in here for? What's the matter with you? Tired out. Machinery run down, you know. If you get into any trouble, see, I am a good friend to me. Well, don't be in here long, Ma. I've got to get married, don't forget. That's right. Find a nice girl to look after you. A good girl. Yes, Ma. Something steady. Nothing cheap. With a head on her shoulders. Love me, son. Disgraced you. Disgrace me, Ma. No, Ma. No, disgrace me, Ma. This is your son, Ernie Mott. The boy who needs you, loves you, wants you. Outside now. 
I'll be back tomorrow, Ma. Be quiet and get a good night's sleep. And we're back. Sunday's on the East End. Uh, we are talking with Andrea Grover of Guildhall, Carlos Lama, famed DJ, actor, thespian, all-around good person, power couple of the Hamptons. I love saying the word power couple. And uh, we were just getting into talking about, uh, Alec was talking about connection and, and arts and, and all of that. And Guildhall was one of the first places, I think, like as soon as this as the shutdown, you guys had stuff on Zoom, like um, you had the Harris Ulan thing, like almost immediately, it seems. So talk a little bit about that, if you can, both of you, uh, what you've done to, to reach well, people. It, so I think the key word is uh, adaptation. <laughs> so as a multidisciplinary arts center, you know, we've always had a museum and a theater and an education program in, in almost equal parts, shifts from time to time. We kind of, as an institution, I think, adopt the theater model of the show must go on, but also, and everybody plays a part, and I'm going to rely on you for your part, and we're going to improvise if anything goes wrong. So I think, whereas museums, which are stewards of objects, tend to move a little more slowly and cautiously, when you've got a theater arm, you generally know how to rig things, right? So... <laughs> So I think that our team was really well poised to say, okay, what resources do we have? Okay, you now, Patrick Dawson, who's this wonderful guy who was working as an assistant technical director, were like, guess what? You're becoming a master of everything streaming. And you're going to do it from your home and we're going to relocate the equipment. You know, so this was Josh Gladstone and and Sebastian, who is our technical director, and they kind of reallocated Patrick's time toward becoming an expert in streaming. So he's got a studio in his house, you know. So the notion of a theater, I think, means that you will figure out a way to make things happen because everything's live and in real time. Um, I also know that you've been able to give back to, to artists during this time um, financially and just by providing a place for them to, to show stuff. Yeah. when it seems like everything is closed down. Can you yeah. elaborate? Sure. The, the first couple of weeks when we were closed and we were realizing like, oh my gosh, we're canceling all of these contracts and these artists were relying, many of them in earlier mid-career, relying on this income and it felt wrong. And so we had to cut over a million dollars out of our budget. So how do we support the late, local creative economy when we ourselves are not, you know, operating with the same resources we would have. So one of the things that we did, the cohort internally, was to look at the, the Federal Arts Project and the WPA and this reinvestment in the creative economy. And so we took the funds that we did have reserved and we redirected them towards paying local artists. So the John Drew Backyard Theater engaged people who were within, you know, a 30-mile radius, give or, give or take, um, Christina Strassfield and Anthony Madonna worked with artists like Monica Banks and Lindsay Morris and forthcoming Rosario Varela, uh, who are all artists that are part of this, this scene out here to develop projects um, where they were paid you know, a, a stipend or a fee to develop things for Guildhall. So we kept the fees focused locally. And then with the Hamptons Arts Network, we created the Artist Relief Fund. And we were able to, thankfully, through... Um, Clifford Ross and Eric Fischel, two artists who've been very successful in their careers, they helped raise um, $168,000 to give away to artists, musicians, performers, actors, writers locally. 
in $2,000 uh, unrestricted cash awards. So this um, somehow we tightened our belt, but we figured out ways to be more generous, as, as strange as that might sound. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and uh, you know, in the time we have left, let, what, what are the programs that people can get involved with? Because I, I feel like we're having this wonderful conversation, but uh, hopefully for our listeners, uh, you know, you're, 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 the listeners are going to be left with, I want to I wanna be involved with Guildhall. I want to be part of a program. So what, what is coming on now? What's, you know, what are you working on at the moment that people can reach and how can they get there? Yeah. Can I have a second to look at our calendar? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Carlos, vamp, vamp while she so I, um, I've had a little bit more of a challenge finding my mojo during the pandemic. I mean, I have a band. We haven't played in a while, but, uh, you know, live music is not happening, really, and trying to figure out how to keep that going. And I've gone back and forth. Andrea wanted me to do a... Uh, just to show from the fireplace singing my Hank Williams Sr. songs, which I can do all night. And, uh, and, and you know, this show might actually inspire me to just, you know, get off my ass and do it. Um, <clears throat> and also, you know, I, I, I actually, Bridget, I don't know if you know, I've been on, I've had a radio show for, I had one for years. I, um, I did know that, something about Gormandizer. Gour I can't yeah, remember. it started out as, a, it was called Moon Tower Radio back in Houston and then changed to, other music for uplifting gourmandizers. And if you've ever been a fan of CBGB and OMFUG, O-M-F-U-G, that's the acronym for dude, it. Dude, dude, I still have my original T-shirt, along with my Stiff Records one, which I cannot. Nice. Repeat. Well, you know, I, I still have Hepatitis C. Oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, so you feel right at home at the uh, John Harvados shop on uh, Bowery. Exactly. Right, right. Um, Anyway, so, uh, you know, and, and, and doing that. So I think I've just, like right now, I've just unloaded the last box of vinyl I had that was still in a box. And I'm just trying to get my garage set up as the man cave and, you know, just perhaps doing some live streaming there. Uh, but you just got to. He, he also, what he's neglecting to say is he's been audio engineering artist projects That's for true. free. Um, you want to say anything about that? Sure. I mean, I love collaborating with artists who need some technical, you know, uh, help with any audio component that they may have. So the. Uh, two, one show that's up at uh, Duck Creek Arts right now in Springs is uh, Lindsay Morris, her uh, series called It's Meet Your Neighbor. And she has photos of houses and objects of neighbors and she did interviews and I, uh, I edited them down and you know set up my PA as part of the installation there. And prior to that, Darius Yekti had his show of paintings up there and there was an audio component by Anthony Madonna, uh, who also is at Guildhall, um, a project, and I set that up for him and, and helped him a bit on that. So that's another thing that I do, and I love doing that just because it's just another, you just learn, you keep learning and growing when you collaborate with, with I just artists. Saw, I just saw a great quote, which is, when you teach, you learn. Yeah. So true. Completely um, true. So, uh, do you, have you have you found what you needed to find now, Andrea? <laughs> There's so much going on at Guildhall. Okay, so the next uh, big art installation is by Rosario Varela, and that's Red, Gold, and You, and that'll be in the Minicus Garden. It's a paper piece, but it will kind of consume all of the trees and be participatory, and that's done with the Teen Arts Council. And there's a blood drive. Yay. We talked about that earlier. Yeah. 
uh, related to this project, which is very red, and it's with the New York Blood Bank, um, and that's on October 23rd. We also have a conversation between the renowned uh, Iranian-born artist Shireen Nishat and the documentary filmmaker Sophie Shahinian, the founder of the Artist Profile Archive. That's on October 18th. Today. That's today. People can tune in right after this show and listen. Exactly. Five, 5.30 today. Watch. And then um, we also have Renee Cox, who's a, an artist who lives out here, who is going to be curating a series of artists of color for Guildhall in 2023. She started a conversation program online called Ring the Alarm, and she'll be interviewing or speaking with Sanford Biggers on October 20th at five o'clock. And there's more, there's a lot more. But, well, there's um, the Joy, Joy Behar is doing something on the 25th, I think. That's the, a totally disrespectful evening of short plays by Joy Behar, which is gonna be an incredible series that she's written and an all-star list of, of uh, performance. And, and, through, and through the pandemic, are these things that are on site or are these things that you can access online? Um, we're doing what we call hybrid or blended programming for a lot of these, but uh, the talks and the Joy Behar will only be online. There's also All for the Hall, with, which is the exhibition that the American artist Robert Longo organized for us. It's a benefit sale for Guildhall, 66 well-known uh, to, to locally well-known artists donated artwork that's being sold to help us keep our doors open. So everyone can find all of this at guildhall.org, correct? That's right. We're out of time and it's just been so, it went really quick. It's been wonderful to see you guys face to face and to hear everything that you have going on. And um, Alec, do you have any final words for us? Yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed the listen this week. Um, I, I certainly am so happy to have gotten to know Carlos and Andrea a little bit more or really a little bit at all uh, for me. Um, I, I think that um, as as we go, uh, you know, towards uh, the you know fall into the winter, you know, we've got the election. It is the election season. I hope everybody votes. Yes. Uh, I hope that we support our post office. I hope we wear our masks, keep socially distanced, follow the science. I also hope, and I, and this is a little bit kind of in a counterbalance, but what what really kind of shine through in this um, in in this conversation is. Um, we, we all need family. We all need to connect. We all need those hubs that uh, can remind us, especially in difficult times, uh, that we are uh, uh, that the world is much bigger than ourselves, and that uh, the, the best of humanity, the the better angels that we all uh, kind of carry, uh, get exhibited when when we uh, uh, connect. And and so um, I, I thank everybody, and I uh, hope everybody can be well and stay well this week.